Welcome to the Rennie Podcast, a podcast about the real estate market and the people connected by it. We seek to empower our listeners to make informed decisions while providing context for the real estate world around them. We hope that with every episode, you become a little more knowledgeable and a lot more curious. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the At Least For Now episode. Today, we're discussing the latest residential real estate data across the Vancouver region for January 2023. Today, we'll focus on two themes. The first theme, 2023, is looking a lot like the end of 2022, at least for now. Number two, the Bank of Canada will hold the line, at least for now. My name is Justine Liu, a managing broker at Rennie, and as always, we're joined with Ryan Berlin, Rennie's Director of Intelligence, and Ryan Wise, Rennie's Senior Analyst with our Intel Division. I'm also very excited to welcome Brandon Price, a 12-year Rennie veteran who is a long-standing medallion, Rennie Leaders, and President's Club recipient joining us today. We have a lot to discuss today, so welcome everybody and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Justine. Thanks, Justine. Thank you and welcome. How is everybody doing today good we finally got you in here it's been a long Brandon. time yes, we've been pursuing you he's been ducking us for months these like, chairs are comfortable i'll probably come back again that, nice. if only you had known months ago you would have actually joined us if i knew it was this good <laughs> spread the word absolutely no thank you guys for having me i appreciate it thank you for making the time and joining us this morning so let's go on to our first theme. Theme number one, 2023 is looking a lot like the end of 2022, at least for now. We've previously talked about how we finished last year in a six-month slowdown, the likes of which we haven't seen for a decade. So now that we have January under our belts, how are things looking now? Yeah, so as we as we talked about with the theme of 2023 so far, looking a lot like 2022, um, sales were quite slow for January. So total MS, MLS sales for the Vancouver region were just over 1,600. That's incredibly low. That's the second lowest January of the past two decades. So only after January 2009 in the depths of the Great Recession did we see lower sales. It's actually the third lowest since 1988. Wow. Uh, so third lowest in three plus decades. That's crazy. checks out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, our population's grown by... <laughs> more than probably 65% over that period of time. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Yeah. So that's 42% less than the the past 10 year average. So that typical January. So incredibly slow sales. Um, and in spite of that, again, we didn't actually see a big bump in inventory. So normally inventory expands in January, typically about 11% from end of December to end of January. Um, but we finished December with uh, 10,000, just under 10,700 listings, which is less than we had in December, so a 2% decline. And of course, we talked last month about how there's this weird drop every year at New Year's. So when you look at it daily, you can see a big drop from December 31st to January 31st. So that happened again this year. So inventory did expand through the month from January 1st to January 31st, but still less than where we finished last year. And so normally we see a really big expansion of inventory through the first three months of the year, about 30% increase. Um, So we're really behind the eight ball uh, in that respect. Um, There's really not an urgency to list that it appears through the data. So new listings were just over 5,000 last month, uh, which is 22% less than last year, 26% less than that long run average. Uh, Again, it's just far fewer new listings coming to market early in the new year um, than we typically see. Um, So Brandon, I'm wondering, 
Uh, it seems like both buyers and sellers are on the sidelines right now. And I'd love to get your take on this. Um, what are your clients telling you right now? Are they saying, you know, I just, I really want to wait for a bit more certainty. Uh, what, you know, whether they're buy side, sell side clients, what are they saying to you right now? Yeah. I mean, I've got a few different sort of clients that have been looking around for a little while and a lot of them are sensitive on rates whether it's they're looking at something under a million or they're looking at something you know over three four million you know rates have gone up significantly mm -hmm. let's call it as general figures sort of in the low four hundred dollars uh, per month range for every hundred thousand you borrow previously, let's call it over a year, year and a half ago, roughly, mm -hmm. depending on whether you're fixed or variable, obviously. And then now it's another $200 a month more. So you're, you know, you're up 50% mm -hmm. and you know, that affects everyone's borrowing power. So, you know, and the sellers, even though sellers, some of them are buyers and some of them are just buyers. I mean, after mm -hmm. they've sold their home, um, they're aware of what those rates are doing to people. So, you know, they're pulling their listings. They are, or the flip side, they're wanting to take advantage of what might be a better purchasing opportunity when they sell their home and they are electing to list at a sharper price and, and sort of move on and get a deal done. Mm -hmm. Um, but I had quite a number of buyers at the end of last year that were looking around, sort of call it like Q3, mm -hmm. sort of start of Q4. And a lot of them have just sort of gone quiet and have pretty much told me that they're waiting for rates to, to settle or come down before they start looking again. So they might not be back in the market for a little while. Okay, interesting. Do you see any difference in like engagement with the market um, or interest in buying on the part of people who are, um, you know, having their using borrowed funds to finance a purchase versus coming to the table with mostly or all cash? Um, I mean, I think just because I feel like, you know, the media is a big part of how this all goes and the stats that are funneled through the media, you know, rightly or wrongly, people are, are following that, whether mm -hmm. it's real estate or, you know, other news, political or otherwise. And it's just funny. It's, you know, people look to purchase and, and participate in the market when everyone's saying it's so busy and things are active. And then when things aren't as busy and the news might be a little bit bleak on the market, everyone, buyers and sellers, sort of sit on their hands a little bit mm -hmm. and they're just saying that it's not the right time. Yeah, so we're two weeks into February now. Um, the, the daily data that we look at for February is telling a similar story. So inventory finally just got back to, up to 11,000 as of yesterday, which is uh, basically where it was on December 30th. Um, daily new listings are way down. We're on pace for just over 5,200 for February. So after January being really slow at 5,000, you know, the typical February is like just over 7,000. So we're nowhere near typical for new listings and to your point Brandon um, you know it seems like people are waiting to hear when is a good time to participate um, given sort of this tight inventory environment there's not a lot of options but there's also less competition um, do you have particular strategies for advising those clients who are maybe on the fence about when to go or when when is the right time and I know you know advice to each client is obviously different but um, do you have maybe, like some strategies you might want to share yeah so general strategy for sort of the 
younger demographic, let's call it your younger families, let's call it people that are under 40 that are either recently married or have a kid or two or three kids. Um, and they're looking to upsize quite dramatically from, again, let's use an example mm -hmm. of maybe they own a property that's worth a million dollars. And, you know, whether it's with the dual income, the bank of mom and dad, their increased income, you know, cashing in on investments, whatever that may be, they're able to go to, let's say, two million ish range. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I'm telling those people that are looking to take that jump to look at doing that now, even if they receive a little bit less than what they would have seen if they sold at the peak of the market. People aren't getting peak of the market pricing on on sort of everything these yeah, days but right? you're selling and buying in the same market. and you, but you're when you're upsizing to something that was around two those homes or those duplexes or whatever you're upsizing into you know condo larger condos when the market picks up those can jump quite quickly in price sort of overnight or week by week and you know after a couple of those jumps when the market picks up people that are looking to have a bigger home for their family mm -hmm. you know sort of getting back to the basics and just taking care of your family and having more space for just general living and enjoyment um you know they're they might be priced out when things mm -hmm. pick up so it's, it's tough to tell someone that you got to take less money for your home and be okay with taking 50 or 100,000 less but those are the conversations that I'm having because you're on a percentage and down payment and cash up basis you're actually you are doing better when you look at the math yeah. when you're when you're making your upsize in a tougher market so telling clients that are looking to upsize um to consider doing it while things are not as frothy as they were and if you're looking to downsize wait till they're really frothy because the numbers look better when you go from a five to ten million dollar house and and downsize into something that's two three or four million because the Houses that were 10 are now, let's call it eight, eight and a half. But, you know, it's when you're downsizing to something that's two, three or four, those numbers don't change all that much in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. They certainly don't change a million and a half or two million like the difference in their house. So I think you see more downsizers come to the market when it's busy. You see the, the upsizers that are savvy and doing their homework and running the numbers come to the come to the table when mm -hmm. it's a little bit softer. That's interesting. We talked a lot about that last year when the market was so yeah. busy, the cost of upsizing uh, to going from a condo to a townhome or a townhome to a detached home and how much those top end prices really ran away from people and how tough it was to upsize in 2022. People just can't do it when the market yeah. picks up. They just A lot of people just can't. They wish that they did something in, in times like these. And, you know, the times like these can come by only here and there. And you can miss it once things pick up. Because mm -hmm. when it picks up, it sort of picks up quite quickly. And it goes like that for a year or yeah. year and a half, at least for now, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, once it's picked up, you've missed, like, the, 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 the ship has sailed to a certain extent. You've missed that opportunity. And now you're sort for of... Sure. 
Yeah, you're bad. You're in there competing with everybody else. And if your lender allows you to port your mortgage over, it's not like you're taking all your financing at that new rate either. I'm making. I, I'm trying to make sure that people are okay with their mortgage payments. That's a key thing, mm-hmm. especially with with things jumping. Like I was saying, so when you look at a million dollar mortgage was let's call it forty three hundred, and now as an example at sixty three rough figures that's a big jump so if you're taking a two million dollar mortgage you know that's four grand more a month Mm -hmm. after tax dollars so four grand after tax you're 50 grand roughly a year which means you sort of have to make a hundred ish extra a year so those are just (laughs) numbers that uh, which a lot of people aren't getting that unless they're getting a gift from the bank of mom and dad or they're in a position where they're have the ability to be entrepreneurial or, or receive a bonus structure for their efforts, you know, in their daily job. So mm-hmm. um, that's the main thing because the pricing is more attractive for these upsizers. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, they, you have to be okay with the payments. And that's where people are liking the numbers, but then they don't like the payment. So that's why you're sort of seeing. Yeah, the math, it's a bit shocking just because that interest component of your payments now is higher than it's been. My gosh, for me, for some people that are in the market now, like maybe literally in their lifetime. Oh, for sure. Right? So yeah. it is. It, there's like almost a sticker shock there. Like, how much of this is going to interest? <laughs> yeah, and obviously, I'm not a mortgage broker. I'm a realtor, but you know, you hear the mortgage brokers recommending to their clients one or two year uh, fixed mortgages, and you know, obviously, no one has a crystal ball, but hoping that things will taper and maybe pull off a little bit rate wise, sort of maybe end of this year, but you know, sort of to be determined on on that front as well. March 8th will be an interesting day with the next Bank of Canada meeting. It's, uh, you know, I was even telling all my clients, I rarely used to even look at when the Bank of Canada sure. is meeting. And now yeah. I know when every meeting is. So when, when every meeting used to be a rate hold for, you know, a year or two straight, mm-hmm. you didn't need to watch those things. But. Well, it's the same. Yeah. I mean, it's the same for us with other data releases too on the job market and then specifically for inflation. Or C- yeah, CPI, like it's, you know. How many years did you not need to watch the CPI data because it was 2% every time? And Yeah, like literally, yeah, 10 years coming out of the last downturn, inflation was low and stable every month. I mean, you wouldn't even notice uh, a media release on new inflation data, right? And now we're just like hanging on, just can't, like we have it all marked in our calendars and we're parsing, you know, all of the language around the, the, the analysis for what it means. So very different, very different times. Yeah, and on that note, let's go to our insight number two. The Bank of Canada will hold the line, at least for now. So the stat shows that the Bank of Canada just raised its policy interest rate 25 basis points to 4.5% on January 25th, which is the eighth time the bank has increased its trend-setting rate in the past 10 months. So with all the monetary policy tightening that Canada's central bank has undertaken in the past year, what makes you think that they'll hold the line, so to say, or not increase rates further this time? Yeah, I mean, we don't know. Anything can happen. But we sort of look at the preponderance of the evidence. And we also, so I think part of it is looking at what we think matters to um, inflation and then therefore interest rates. But another aspect of sort of, crystal balling this is to look at what the Bank of Canada itself is saying when it's making rate decisions. So 
I'll, I'll mention a few things here. Um, I'll rattle off a few sort of um, summary perspectives from the bank uh, to provide some context. I think one thing for them that they're seeing, which is really, really important for us in this fight against inflation, is that they're seeing that this restrictive monetary policy, and we call monetary policy restrictive when we're increasing interest rates, the bank is now acknowledging that this is slowing economic activity. The reason that's a good thing, even though it sounds a bit strange, is that if we weren't seeing slowing economic activity or we weren't seeing signs of it working, then we could we should just really expect more rate hikes, more tightening. So it's it's good news that after what ten months, eleven months now of increasing rates, we're definitely seeing some impact there. Um, we're seeing consumer spending and business investment uh, decline um, a little bit, or at least growth in those areas slow. Um, we're also seeing, because inflation's been sort of a, a global phenomenon and we've seen central banks around the world increase rates, we're now seeing that restrictive monetary policy everywhere weaken the foreign demand for the things that we produce, our exports. And so that tends to slow our economy as well. Um, and so I think now the bank, what was really interesting coming out of the bank's announcement on January 25th was that they expect to see inflation fall to around 3% by the middle of this year. So that sounds a, a lot more normal than yeah. what we've been used to over the last couple and of years. the peak was, was it 8.1 or 8.3? 8.1 yeah. 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 last yeah. June. Yeah. But what's interesting too, if I can jump in, is yeah. just uh, a month prior, a month and a half prior, they said they expected inflation to hit 3% at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. And then in January, they revised that to the middle of this year. So that's a six-month change in when they think inflation will be back within the target range. So that's, I think, really good news. Do you think that's an aggressive prediction? Well, <laughs> well, can we? We'll, we'll share. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably. We'll, we'll, I think. I think we'll share some some thoughts on on interest rates and inflation in a moment, vis-a-vis uh, -vis some predictions that we've made. Mm -hmm. um, but I think so. I guess in short, to answer your question, no, we don't think yeah. it's very aggressive. <laughs> we think it's actually pretty reasonable. Okay. So we can circle back to that. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to mention that was unique about the bank's announcement or their their January 25th meeting was for the first time ever, they actually released a summary of the governing council's deliberations. So in other words, they sort of gave us a bit of a window into how they came to, to their decision mm -hmm. to increase the policy rate by 25 basis points. Yeah. They've never done that before. And it's fascinating. So they're doing it as an effort to be more transparent. They've taken a lot of criticism the last few years. Uh, but these meeting minutes are absolutely fascinating for anyone that uh, is interested in this, and I think a lot of people are interested <laughs> in this right now. Yeah, we're all we're all we're all interest rate nerds now. <laughs> but it's um, yeah. So usually they just make a decision, right? And you go mm -hmm. okay, and they give some context to that decision. Sort of here's what's happening in the you know the broader economy that led us to this decision. But I think what's interesting about this one is they sort of they they let us all know that there wasn't necessarily. Uh, unanimity in the perspective on what should happen with rates. Mm -hmm. Really, they were they were they were contemplating two potential options. One was this rate hike, which they ultimately pursued, but the other was no rate increase. Right. So you had sort of like half of the council saying maybe we should stop here because we actually don't we haven't seen the full effects of the rate hikes to this point. So even if, in other words, if they didn't raise rates on January twenty fifth. That more restrictive monetary policy, the hikes from the previous March to 
through December, we're still going to have an impact. We just don't know what those are going to be. So yeah. some of the some of the council said let's stand pat, and others said, listen, there's a bit of a risk that longer term uh, inflation gets stuck higher than where we want it. Like it gets stuck maybe around three percent for a longer time period. And let's just put a like let's just put a tack in this now. Like let's be safe in our in 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 regards to our fight on in, against inflation and raise it one more time. And I think there's some acknowledgement that there's maybe some upside risk to inflation with China um <clears throat> China ending its zero covid policy mm-hmm. because if that economy gets its feet under it's been sort of really hobbled recently but if it can sort of if if consumption spending and production ramps back up, then the demand for energy is going to increase, and that could filter into our inf- like we could end up importing that inflation essentially, mm-hmm. uh, or bearing the brunt of it. So like via increasing energy prices, so there is there is some risk there still. So I think they erred on the side of caution, but they really did say like, listen, unless we unless we really have to change course here, we think this is going to be it for now. Um, which is good news. And I think for us then, you know, I think what they're looking at when they say they think inflation is going to get down to 3% by mid-year, I mean, right, that's essentially what our prediction is when we just look at the inertia of inflation and the lack of month-to-month inflationary pressures we've seen over the past six months. If that continues, and I think it's likely that, we're, you know, we've seen house prices fall, we've seen spending, uh, spending decline, we've seen rents increase more slowly, shipping mm-hmm. costs have come down. Mm-hmm. Uh, energy costs have come down. Commodity prices have leveled out a little bit. So all of that stuff is likely to be context for our economy in the next six to twelve months. And if that's the case, then we will see that the the annual inflation rate come down to. I mean, we think by <laughs> we think it's a bit aggressive sounding, but we think it'll be in that one to three percent range by the spring. Mm-hmm. A Valentine's Day just passed, and common sentiment was that not very many people spent a lot of money on flowers <laughs> that has gone down so yeah i think uh, people are not uh, spending as much money these days i think i think for sure and i think that's also in some ways it's a good it's a good sign it's a reflective of maybe a bit of pain because mm-hmm. people are having to ration their purchases now a little bit and they're spending but i think it's it means that people are responding to these higher these higher interest rates yeah so and I and I guess like our perspective on, you know, if rates are peaking, if they actually are peaking, and our prediction, you know, we look at it and we say we feel pretty confident about the direction of inflation, mm-hmm. but we just released a report last week called the Rennie Outlook, and we actually recorded a podcast about it as well, and in there we kind of really elaborated on our on our forecast for inflation. I, that that uh, got some attention on social media. And I thought it would be worth reading out a couple of comments because really not everyone agreed with us. Uh, <laughs> someone did come out and say that uh, they think that we're smoking the finest quality hopium <laughs> over here at Rennie. Uh, and someone else called our forecast impossible <laughs> unless the economy starts shedding 100,000 jobs a month. Um, so, I mean, clearly there are differing perspectives based on differing, you know, foundations of data mm-hmm. or otherwise um, but it's going to be an interesting few months uh, either way yeah I'm interested to see um, where these predictions lead to and uh, yeah what the I guess the result of that that what the findings will be so you know regardless of the of the you know the direction of inflation in the near term um, 
you know, not totally regardless, but I mean, we think that, you know, rates generally will not, interest rates will not go up further, but they're still high. So they are, even though they may not be changing over the next few months, um, they're still going to impact people's ability to afford homes. Um, and so then we look at, we layer in something, Brandon, like the stress tests as well, right? So you look at the qualifi- the qualifying rate that people are facing right now. Yes. And it is, it's, yeah, I mean, it's higher than it's been in decades. Um, and so are you seeing... Are you seeing uh, parents, grandparents who are actually able to come in and help bridge that value gap with either first-time homebuyer kids or grandkids or uh, family members who are looking to move up because you know they need more space because they've had kids because COVID and high interest rates and inflation haven't stopped those life events that, that always happen from happening? Yeah, actually today, for example, I had uh, a client, uh, we went and toured a home in the west side around our Butis Kits area. And uh, we, we resubmitted an offer literally two hours ago. And the price that they wanted to go to was higher than not only what I thought the market was, but higher than what I thought they should pay. And they pretty much said they were getting parents help for additional funds and or co-signing for the mortgage uh, stuff if needed. So this home is just under four million. Their home that they're looking to to sell is sort of in the low to mid two range. It's an opportunity for them to make a jump. They have a few children, and you know they're looking again. Like I was saying earlier, they're looking to house their family in a in a neighborhood that they want to be for a long time. And, you know, they're not overly concerned about, they're not paying 10% more than I think it's worth. It's probably about five. It's 100,000 above the BCSS value for mm-hmm. 2023. So it's not a staggering figure, mm-hmm. um, but it's a little bit more than what I think. But again, like I was mentioning before, the single family detached homes are, they're, they're the more active segment of the market. And when you look at, with all due respect to condos, whether it be pre-sale or resale, it's, uh, you get quite a bit of bang for your buck when you're looking at a home that's sort of in the high three range, when you actually step back and look at the home and look at the size of the home. And then you look at the land and you do an aerial and mm-hmm. you just see what you're getting, like and and potential for increased density, mm-hmm. the city working on whatever affordability measures they're working on sort of behind the scenes on maybe increasing sort of number of units per per lot and additional dwellings so people are willing to make that little bit of an extra jump even though i'm based on my advice telling them sort of not to but i can understand their (laughs) you know rationale so you're seeing a bit of bank and mom and dad i saw way more of it sort of like when the market was frothy just before uh the foreign buyers tax came in call it like five six years ago I was seeing a lot more of that because then, you know, like I was touching on previously, the downsizers are getting big numbers for their homes. And at that point, what they were downsizing into, the price points weren't overly staggering based on what they were getting. Now, you look at those same downsizers are not putting as much money in their pocket because some of these newer condos or the downsizing product has jumped based on construction costs and uh, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think you'll, again, you'll see more bank of mom and dad and family help 
uh, you know, when things get a little bit busier. Second to that, I am seeing some higher net worth families, uh, whether that be family trusts or money that's been set aside for assisting with housing for families, uh, helping those higher net worth children that do have a growing family uh, purchase a home that, again, their family can be in for 10, 15, 20 years or, or, or longer. So, you know, that's the flip side to, you know, that's not representative of the entire marketplace, but it is something that I'm seeing here and there with uh, local Vancouver families that are receiving assistance from sort of high net worth parents and, and their family. It's interesting. I feel like this this whole concept of co-signing flies under the radar a little bit. And when we talk about it in the context of the, like meeting that high hurdle of the qualifying rate right now, that can be a really um, pragmatic route for buyers to go is to have their parents with their assets and maybe even still income brought into the deal feeling like maybe, hey, you know, yeah, qualifying at, you know, 7% is a bit much. That'd be a, that would be a lot of, a lot of uh, interest burden to carry, but rates aren't going to go up to there. I just really, realistically, I'm going to be paying four and a half percent. So like, are you seeing, are you seeing more of that co-signing strategy i'm seeing like a lot of those conversations again today my client told me like right around the time that i hit send on submitting their offer uh to the listing agent i'm repping the buyer they mentioned that you know and i i've heard it here and there on sort of the stuff that's under a million as well mm-hmm. condo product under a million sort of west side or east vancouver or downtown you're seeing parents co-sign if they're if the children sort of have their own savings are making a big leap on their own with sort of money that them or or their partner has saved up to buy a home but the parents giving that little extra bump whether it means co-signing or an extra sort of 50 to a hundred thousand dollars you know you're seeing it here and there mm-hmm. for sure especially when their parents you know touching on all the clear title real estate in in metro mm-hmm. vancouver and bc you know a lot of these parents might not even have any mortgages but they're sort of old school and They don't want to open up their checkbook too much because they've been conservative throughout their life because they've seen rates that are triple Mm -hmm. what we're seeing. So the parents are cautious, but they're helping if they can. And and if they have a few children, they also have to recognize that they're probably (laughs) going to have to do the same that they do for for each of their children, uh, you know, that they do for one. Unless they like one the most. (laughs) Yeah. And that's another story altogether. (laughs) You know, I'm seeing it also, you know, with with things moving a little bit slower in the market, people, you know, having the ability to, you know, look at sort of macro stats on population growth and immigration and and things like that, just because, you know, when, when things are moving so quickly, people aren't really looking at those things. But again, coming back to the to the savvier buyers or just people that are looking to educate themselves in in times that may be a little bit slower than than the more active times in the market with every property selling for over asking with multiple offers i think you got to look at those population numbers you know i'm trying to focus on them as well to educate my clients because you look at all the people that are coming to bc 
you look at even roughly, let's call it 100,000 people coming to BC, that's a lot of people. That's the equivalent, you know, I always use Rogers Arena as an example. It's, you know, it's at least five of those filled up. Mm -hmm. And you see how much traffic is created in and around one Canucks game. And you think about five of those overflowing in the course of a year, or let's even call it four if we're even being super conservative on the numbers of people that are coming to BC. And that's one, you know, stadium overflowing every quarter. Sort of an easier way to wrap your head around it. And it's a lot of people. And then you look at downtown towers, you know, Vancouver House as an example. It's got around 400 units. I don't know the exact calculation on how many people per per unit, but let's just blanket it as, let's call it two uh, or two and a half. Let's just call that 800 to 1,000 people in that building. That's that's a lot of buildings that you have to create to house a hundred thousand. And I'm not I'm by no means saying that all of those people are, are gonna be looking to to purchase real estate. They won't. That's why these dev- the developers in town and you know, private investors are investing in multifamily and, and rental housing. But uh, you know, it's just a lot of people and that, you know, the more people increases competition. So when things do pick up, whenever that is, you know, all of those bodies are going to be in town and arguably fighting over sort of the same product that people were sort of uh, sitting on their hands Mm -hmm. and not doing much uh, at at times when it's a little bit quieter or the media or their friends are telling them not to participate. That's a really good point. So if you start seeing that Rogers Arena analogy start popping up in the outlooks and in the, <laughs> yeah, in the landscape, we know where we got it from. I always use Rogers, yeah, because what it's like eighteen thousand people, right, yeah. roughly, plus or minus. So it's uh, and it's a lot of people. You look at that like when you think about that, and then you also you know double back on looking you know at at how many people are in a Vancouver house or a Fairmont. Uh, Pacific Rim or any of the bigger towers you know there's not 2,000 people living in there um, you know so it's even if you mm-hmm. look at it around seven eight hundred a thousand people you know that's that's a hundred of those buildings to house a hundred thousand people coming to BC so yeah when you put it into perspective like that you can fit you can kind of imagine it and see it and think yeah, what that number really means. And then that sort of justifies or proves to and gives some backing to why the single family homes are busier because it's, uh, they're, they're not really making any more of them. Uh, there's very few lots that can be subdividable. And if anything, some of those are being removed from the marketplace with land assemblies or mm-hmm. the creation of townhouse or condo product or rental product so you know it's uh the number of those homes are shrinking every year yeah i think it's safe to say the that the traditional the notion of a traditional single family home is going extinct Mm -hmm. yeah it is for sure so the opportunity for people to upsize and do that now and be able to justify it and you know actually afford it on their own or with uh you know a little nudge from their family it's a good opportunity they might not this opportunity might not come around for another seven years plus or minus you know depending on what happens with the market so yeah the market is very unpredictable and that's some really good points brandon thank you very much for sharing so on today's podcast we meandered through two main themes the first theme is in 2023 it's looking a lot like the end of 2022 at least for now number two the bank of canada will hold the line at least for now so we'll wait and see what happens there 
So Brandon Price, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you have any final advice or final takeaways that you'd like to share with uh, potential home buyers or sellers who might be thinking of you know entering into the marketplace right now? Yeah, I, with with seeing the lack of supply that's out there and everyone feeling like sellers are going to be rushing to to sell and maybe panic with the higher rates and and all of that. My advice to people looking to enter people looking to upsize or, or just purchase generally. There's just not that much good supply out there, you know, of good quality product, well-built product, well-built condos, well-built homes. So if you see something that you like, you're able to afford it, whether that's on your own or with some family assistance, you know, it's uh, not a bad time to participate uh, when things aren't quite as busy and you have to make, a, you know, a panicked, rushed, and maybe a little bit flustered decision with competing mm-hmm. with five or 10 other bidders. So take this opportunity to seek good product. Don't settle for, for something that's not good quality product or good for long-term resale or for your family, um, but use the opportunity to participate with it being a little bit less competitive. Great. And of course, with that, with the advice and help of a professional realtor, and so if anybody wanted to reach out to you, where's the best way they can contact you? Uh, giving me a call uh, on my cell or uh, text is great, uh, 604-765-9555. Easy awesome. number. Yes. And also you can also find Brandon on ready.com slash Brandon Price. And you can also find his contact details there. So thank you so much for joining us. This wraps up this episode of the Rennie podcast. To dig deeper into the data, be sure to check out our latest Rennie review and other intelligence information on rennie.com slash intelligence. Be the first to receive this information straight to your inbox, register for intelligence updates. Thank you so much, Brandon, for joining us today again. We really appreciate your time. Ryan and Ryan, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Justine. Thanks, Justine. Thanks, Thanks for coming, Brandon. Brandon. Thank yeah. you all. The Rennie Podcast is a Rennie production and is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more, all resources mentioned in the episode can be found on rennie.com. Thank you.